I mentioned to you on Christmas Eve that one of my favorite movies was It's a Wonderful Life. What I didn't mention there was that I also have perhaps my second favorite movie is pretty much the opposite of that. It's Apocalypse Now. Have you ever seen that movie? It's a, it's a disturbing movie. I'll give you a, a forewarning about that because it's really a movie that's set against the backdrop of the Vietnam War, which the United States was fighting uh, during the 1960s and early 70s. And it's a story of a man, Captain Willard, who's a U.S. Army captain, who has been given an assignment to go and kill Colonel Kurtz. Colonel Kurtz is a commanding officer in the, the United States Army, but he's gone rogue. He's stopped listening to Army commands, and so the Army decides that they want him quietly dispatched before he goes and does more damage than he's already done. So it's really the story of him going up the river and eventually finding this person in order to kill him. So a pretty, pretty sad kind of motif is, is set right from the beginning. It's got a lot of things that are disturbing, but I've got to tell you the most disturbing scene in the entire movie is a scene where they dock uh, in a, a forward operating base in the U.S. Army in which they are camped right there on the river, and there's a bridge over the river, and so the Army w was sent there in order to rebuild the bridge after it had been blown up, blown up and make sure it stays maintained. And what he learns when he gets there is, is that every day the U.S. Army engineers build this bridge and repair it, and then every night the Viet Cong attack and wreck the bridge. And so it is this constant hellish cycle in which something is built, something is destroyed, nothing seems to make any progress. When Captain Willard goes ashore to try and get some supplies, he goes to look for the commanding officer, asks all over the place, he asks the soldier and says, who's in charge here, soldier? And the soldier says, aren't you? Nobody's in charge. It's this hellish kind of scene in which not only does no progress get made, also nobody believes anybody has control over the situation. And it's disturbing because this anxiety sets in as you're watching it, thinking those situations where you don't know where you're headed and you don't know who's in charge are the worst situations you ever find yourself in in life. Now, I mention that not because I want to start with a, a really sad note, although that is a sad note but because I believe that the Gospel lesson today, the Feast of the Epiphany, offers an incredibly powerful antidote to this situation in which no progress is made, in which nobody seems to be in charge. Because the Gospel story of the Epiphany and the wise men visiting is in fact the story of someone very much in charge. That even when the actors on the stage are doing wicked things, in which it seems chaotic, there is a director behind the scenes who is governing everything and bringing it to an end that is glorious. I'd like to speak to you today about the Epiphany and to speak not only about the events that happened 2,000 years ago when the wise men visited Jesus, but to speak to you how this story in which God is in control of things is a story that comforts us when we feel out of control, even though so much in our modern lives seems to be going right. Now, just a little bit of background. Many of you, I'm sure, will have heard this story. And if you uh, were raised uh, going to church for Christmas, I can remember my favorite uh, parts of that story were the wise men. And even if you're here, you can notice that we finally put the wise men, they finally showed up here in the creche that's right there to my right. Uh, and what I loved about them, you can see they're all in exotic kind of clothing and they've got rich robes and they've got camels and you're always wondering, where did these guys come from? Well, we don't really know where they came from. I mean, one of the things that we're told is that they're wise men. The, the Greek word you're used here is magi. That's where we get the word magic. The Magi were people that somewhere in the East, it could have been in modern-day Iraq, it could have been in modern-day Iran, could have been India. We don't really know other than they came somewhere East of where Israel is. What we do know about them is, is that they were astronomers. And astronomers and astrologers today are kind of uh, 
they don't see eye to eye on things. Let's say that much. An astronomer is a scientist who studies the skies. An astrologer is the person who writes out the daily horoscope. And you can tell things about your life, supposedly, by reading it. Back in those days, astronomy and astrology were, in fact, kind of the same thing. People would study the stars, but very learned people would believe the stars could tell you something about events and about what would happen in the future. So this is a story of people who were astrologers somewhere in the East, wise and learned, who looked up in the sky, saw some event happening in the sky, some star or supernova or something that, that, that there that told them something significant was happening, and presumably they interpreted that as astrologers to say something big is happening in Israel. Some king is being born, and so what do they do? They do the thing that would probably be obvious to a person. If a king is to be born, let's go visit the capital city of Israel, and let's go talk to the king, because probably a new king being born must mean it's a son of the current king. So they go to Jerusalem and ask King Herod, where's this, this great new child to be born? And King Herod is disturbed because he hasn't had a child. He's not there looking and saying, well, thank you for coming to, to, to pay homage to my child. He's disturbed because he thinks that there's a rival. So he doesn't know where this is, what's happening, and he says to his, uh, his scholars, his Jewish scholars, look in the scriptures. What do you say about the birth of a Messiah, the new king? He's to be born in Bethlehem, and they quote the Old Testament. So the, the wise men go, and they give the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh when they come to Bethlehem, and then they leave because they're told in a dream that Herod actually wants to kill this child. We heard last week in the gospel reading, if you were here, and, and Lisa was preaching and presiding, of how Herod, when he realizes he was tricked, is very angry, he sends his soldiers and says, I want to get rid of this little child, so he kills every child under the age of two in Bethlehem. Very wicked act, but we know historically that Herod was a wicked man who killed several of his own children because he was afraid they were trying to be usurpers. And so they leave. But they also, uh, before the soldiers arrive, we learn a little bit later that Joseph, in a dream, knows that this is happening, and so he goes to Egypt, preserves Mary and Jesus, and then they move back after Herod dies, and they settle in Nazareth. So that's the background. So why is it that I tell you that this is a story that brings comfort when there's chaos, comfort when we're uncertain, comfort when we feel there's no one in control? Because as you look at the story, you see an awful lot of chaos and nastiness. You see King Herod and the forces of darkness trying to enclose upon Jesus. You see poverty is born in a stable, not in some rich palace. You see something where it seems like all the forces are working against Jesus to accomplish his mission, and yet someone who doesn't have any actual lines in this story is the one who makes sure that the story ends well. Let's look first about who initiates everything. So you notice I kept mentioning about things that start all the story moving. None of these things are human initiatives. Think about where the whole story starts. An angel comes from God to tell the Virgin Mary you will conceive and you will have a child, says in Luke's Gospel. No person's agency is involved. No man is involved in this. What happens for um, uh, when Joseph is thinking about marrying Mary and he, he, he thinks she's been unfaithful because she's pregnant? An angel comes, not a human being, an angel comes from God in a dream to say, Joseph, don't be afraid to take this woman as your wife. What do we find then next? We find that wise men didn't come because Joseph and Mary sent them a message. Wise men come because God placed a star in the skies and they came. Why is it that they came and brought, um, uh, when they came, why it is that they escaped and not into Herod's clutches? Because God sent a messenger in a dream. And why is it Jesus was protected? Because a dream came to Joseph to say, go and move to Egypt. Everything about this story, even though God doesn't speak 
explicitly in this story, everything happens because of God's initiative, not human initiative. What also do we find? We find that everything happens in a very planned out way. Think about what happens when the, the wise men see the star. How are we supposed to believe that a star indicates that somebody is going to be born in Israel, except that somehow, somewhere, they are told? What happens then when we find they come to Jerusalem? We find that they quote a hundred years old prophecy saying the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Somebody has planned this out for hundreds of years that this child will be born. And what is it that these people bring? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is a kingly gift. Frankincense is what is burned in the temple by the priests. It's part of priestly worship. What is myrrh? It is an ointment for burial. Jesus will die. He will rise again to forgive the sins of the people and to give them the promise of eternal life. Everything here is foreordained and planned out to say, I know what is going to happen. The director behind the scenes of this drama is saying everything has started because of my direction and everything is coming to the place I want it to come to, even though what dominates the stage in front of your eyes are actors of chaos and disorder and poverty and violence. There is a director who is bringing it to an end that is glorious, the glorious resurrection of Jesus. Now, these are all great and wonderful things to say that happened 2,000 years ago, but of course we know that our lives are very, very different. We learn here, of course, of Jesus' poverty, and that's underlined in uh, many ways, particularly in Luke's gospel. But we, of course, live in unprecedented prosperity. Canada now has an unemployment rate of less than 6%, just by uh, my own lifetime back in the early 80s, an unemployment rate of 13%. Or we think, for example, about the, the world, and we think, well, the world is a, a, is a mess, but in fact, I remember back in the 80s, you remember the whole uh, Ethiopian famine and how it is the, 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 the great uh, sort of effort to relieve world poverty. Do you know that in 1990, the year I graduated high school, the World Bank estimated that 1.9 billion people in this world lived in extreme poverty, which meant that they didn't have enough to feed themselves, let alone have any luxuries. Do you know that at the end of 2019, the World Bank says that only 650 million people now live in extreme poverty. That's less than half of what it was just a few decades ago. An enormous increase in the economic prosperity of millions and millions of people. Or we think, for example, about peace. Yes, we hear about war on the news, but there's not been a war on Canadian soil for more than 200 years. Even the Second World War, which is a, a terrible conflagration, very, very few people now remember it. It's not in living memory for most of us, and some of the last of the veterans who fought in that terrible conflict are passing away. We have lived with unprecedented peace, even stability. You know, we now have a new government, a minority government, but do you feel really different now that it's no longer a majority government in Canada and it's a minority? It doesn't seem so different to me. The fact is, is that there has been unprecedented stability. I and you are not afraid that the police will show up in your neighborhood and kill all the babies. None of us are afraid of that. We look at all those things and we see they were so different from the anxiety and fear-inducing things happening 2,000 years ago. But if you log on today after church and you start looking at everything there, are you going to get the impression that everybody's totally chill and relaxed nowadays? No, I don't think you are, right? I think you will go online and you will find that people are just as anxious, no matter how their material benefits have changed, just as anxious, just as fearful, and just as worried as anybody was 2,000 years ago when there was more violence, more poverty, more chaos. 
And I'd like to suggest to you that one of the big reasons why we continually feel this way, no matter what our material circumstances change, is because we still feel that sense of anxiety because we do not know where the future is going and we do not believe there is anyone in charge. Now, I was reminded as I was preparing for this sermon, a, a poem I read back in university, and it was written more than 100 years ago by William Butler Yeats, a poem called The Second Coming. Listen to these words and see if this poem written 100 years ago in the aftermath of the First World War when so many people had their illusions shattered, whether it resonates with you. He writes this, Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Talk about a phrase that sums up social media. There you go. These things haven't changed much in a hundred years. There's still that anxiety. There's still all of this fear. And what does this tell us? This story of the wise men coming for how, who knows how many miles to go visit the baby Jesus is meant to be a reassurance to us that there is a light in this world that is not of this world, a light that shines in this world, and the darkness cannot overcome it. This light is the light of Jesus Christ, and this world will turn out the way God wants it to turn out, no matter what the actors on this stage may want to do. We often feel like William Butler Yeats's character, where the falcon no longer hears the falcon, or we fear that we no longer hear the voice of the one who's in control. But what does this story tells us? It tells us that the Holy Spirit's voice continues to speak to us. We who are floating like the falcon can hear the falconer, and we are meant to open our ears and listen when God says to us, I know you, and I have plans for you, not to harm you, but to prosper you. What does this story tell us? It tells us, first of all, that we do not need to be afraid of the future because someone holds the future in his hands. I'm often worried when I look at the future of the church. I speak about it maybe more than I should, but I read statistics about church decline around Canada, but especially in the Anglican church, about how much it's shrinking and about how many budgets are constrained and how many people no longer go to church on a regular basis. I look at that and I say to myself, my gosh, what am I going to do? This is a big problem. Wish I could say, well, I'm Martin Luther King. I can preach up a storm and a million people will march on Washington at my word. Nope, that's not what I'm like. Maybe I wish I'm Steve Jobs and I can do something and reorganize how the church works so that the small groups of churches can be reorganized into a mega church in which people find the teaching and the ministry of the church is revolutionary and they can't wait to come. But I'm not Steve Jobs. What am I? I'm in a smallish kind of church in a suburb of Ottawa. Do you know this story tells me? That's enough. I don't have to be Martin Luther King. I don't have to be Steve Jobs. Neither do you. All I really have to do is reflect the same light that shone into the world in the manger 2,000 years ago. The one who from ages and ages before foretold the coming of the Messiah and who preserved the life of this Messiah so that he might live and die and rise again for the sake of this world. All I am called to do is to tell this story again and again and again that there is someone you can trust, our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer, and the one who will bring all things to the end that he desires. Where's the hope for the church? Who guarantees the church's prosperity and existence? It isn't me. It's not you. It's not the bishop. It is the Lord who planted the church 
And when the church has a mission God wants it to do, he will preserve it and make sure that that mission is accomplished. That's not just for me as a clergy person. Think about how many times we find ourselves in life overwhelmed by anxieties and fears about what the future will bring. What will our children grow up to be? And will I make the right decision? What are we called to do? It's not to make sure that our children succeed. We don't have control over that. What are we called to do to love the children God gives us and day by day teach them as best we can? And it's the same thing when it comes to your work, when it comes to your daily things. Value the small things that accomplish the shining of God's light in small ways and let God take care of the things that are big. So how do you start off this new year as we celebrate Epiphany? Start off this new year with the knowledge that no matter what this year brings us, there is someone who's in charge. Sleep soundly in your bed at night, not overwhelmed with anxiety because you believe that the same God who brought Jesus into this world, who preserved Jesus' life, who is willing and able to bring wise men from miles away by something that they could not have predicted or ever thought possible, is the same God who directs and guides your life. Take the small steps to listen to Him day by day, to listen to Him day by day, and to do what He asks you to do in the small ways of loving the people God gives you. This may seem small, but this God who does great things acts through the small so that his great desires and great mission can be accomplished by his power and his wisdom and not our own.